Don't we appreciate that? Before beginning the word this morning, I want to do a couple of very personal things. First of all, yesterday the Downings were able to move back in their house. <laughs> and uh, uh, as the oldest man of the clan, I want to express the gratitude in behalf of the family for all that so many of you did, uh, providing furniture, other objects, money, your time. Uh, I don't know how anybody could ever want a better church than this. We're family. Second thing, a very personal thing, and I for a long time have wondered how to do this, and I can't figure out how, so I'll do it this way. 1996, the church was going through some real struggles. Uh, Jim Grinnell was coming back, I think, from a vacation. He called me, and he said, I think we need to call the church to prayer. And I said, next week you're preaching. Let's call the church to prayer Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, three days. You do that, and he did that in the sermon. And so we had three days of prayer, middle of the summer, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I was on my face over here, and I sensed the Lord say to me, cut your salary in half, activate your social security. I presented that to the elders. They confirmed that as a true word, which meant I would lose about a third of my income. The elders uh, were concerned about that, and so they established a fund into which people could contribute for my support. I don't know who has given money or how much. I've intentionally kept it that way because I never want anyone to think that there's any favoritism, that I would give any favoritism to those who have supported me. But from 1906 onward, every month people have given to support me. And I don't know how to thank you except to thank whoever you are today. What love. Last Sunday, Bill talked about connecting the dots. Talked about how behavior and thoughts produce results, but that frequently we just fail to see what's obvious before us. How cause produces results. We fail to connect the dots. This morning I'm going to borrow from Bill and uh, compete, com- continue with that figure a little bit and conduct some dots, but not the same dots that Bill focused on. We want to talk about some other dots. <laughs> Think about this. This is the first Sunday of April. Can you believe it? <laughs> a fourth of the year is gone. And uh, we're moving rapidly. We passed the quarter mark. Most years we would have already celebrated Easter Sunday, but here this year Easter Sunday is the very last Sunday of April. And So this morning as we travel down the road toward Easter, it seems to me it'd be a good time to remind ourselves of why we celebrate the cross, why we celebrate the resurrection. There'll be nothing said this morning that you don't know, and yet it's uh, good that we take time to remind ourselves of what we know. So we ask the question, why Easter? Uh, We want to connect the dots. But first let me take a couple of sidetracks to deal with some frequently asked questions. You notice when you're uh, in certain websites, they have FAQs if you're wanting to find out something. So let me deal with a couple of FAQs. (laughs) 
related to Easter. The first one is, why does Easter Sunday not always occur on the same calendar day of the year? Why does it move as it does? Early on, the Asian churches celebrated the cross and the resurrection in sync with the Jewish Passover. And the Jewish Passover occurs on the 14th day of the month Nisan. The month Nisan begins with the first new moon after the vernal equinox. And so as the Asian churches celebrated that, that meant that, well, you never knew when that particular day was going to happen. The Passover lamb slain on the 14th of Nisan, and and that day moved depending upon how the moon related to the earth in any given year. And so the Asian churches might celebrate the crucifixion on Tuesday and the resurrection on Thursday because two or three days later the resurrection happened. The Western churches also observe this uh, celebration in synchronization with the Passover except they would always delay the celebration of the resurrection until Sunday. And this became a great controversy among the churches, caused a division. And so in 325, when the Council of Nicaea was held, and among the many things that were discussed, the purpose of that council was to try to uh, unite the church. And so leaders came together to discuss different issues that were dividing them. And this is one of those issues that was discussed. And so out of that council came the decision that indeed the, uh, the, these uh, days would be celebrated on the first Sunday that followed the first new moon after the vernal equinox. And everybody was to make that the rule. However, they decided, you know, because we have the vernal equinox moving, we will decide that from now on the vernal equinox will be March 21st regardless of when it actually is. And so March the 21st on the ecclesiastical calendar became the vernal equinox. But you still didn't have the same day because it still had to be, uh, you know, the first Sunday after the first new moon after the vernal equinox. And so the new moon still occurred at different times. Not only that, the eastern churches use a different calendar than the western churches. The eastern churches use the Julian calendar. We use the Gregorian calendar and they're not in sync, and therefore sometimes even following the rule that the vernal equinox will be March 21st, March 21st on the Julian calendar, and March 21st on the Gregorian calendar can be weeks apart. And so we have the Eastern Orthodox Church sometimes celebrating Easter four or five weeks after the rest of us have already celebrated it. That's why Easter doesn't occur every year on the same Sunday, I mean on the same date. Uh, It moves about uh, according to those things. A second frequently asked question is, where on earth did the term Easter come from? Now, if you search your English Bibles, you will not find the word Easter in any version except the King James. And it occurs only one time in Acts 12, 4. And there it is an incorrect rendering of the Greek word Pascha. Pascha is a Greek word that refers to the Passover. 
And in almost every culture, the word that is used to describe this time of the year is some version of Pascha. In French, it's P-A-Q-U-S. In Spanish, P-A-S-C-U-A. In both Scotland and Sweden, P-A-S-K. In Dutch, it's P-A-S-C-H-E. In Danish, P-A-A-S-K-E. In Latin, P-A-S-C-H-A. In the Celtic church, this is interesting, C-A-I-S-C, which is the Irish equivalent of P-A-S-C-H. I don't know how to pronounce C-A-I-S-C in Celtic. Some of you may. So where did the term Easter come from? In all honesty, we have to say the origin is uncertain. There are different points of view. Let me tell you the three most dominant points of view. Some seek to explain Easter as uh, originating in the spring festival of a Teutonic goddess. Sometimes you see the name spell E-S-T-E-A-S-T-R-E. Sometimes you see it spell O-E-S-T-R-E but uh, some form of estra. And according to this view, in the second century, when Christian missionaries went among the Teutonic tribes, began to evangelize, they found them in the springtime having a rather raucous celebration of this goddess whose earthly representation was the rabbit. And so the Christians thought, what do we do about this? Because here's this raucous celebration happening at the very same time that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so they very gradually began to subvert that uh, pagan celebration until finally it became identified as the Christian celebration. And so from Estray came the word Easter. Another explanation that's given by linguists point out that in the early church, especially in the second century, it became the custom that when somebody was baptized, you removed your garments, you were immersed, and when you came out of the baptistry, you were given a white robe. And it was a custom for many people to put off baptism until the week before Easter Sunday, before the resurrection day. And so that particular week, in every village, there were many people wearing white robes. And therefore, this came to be called the Hebdomna Alba, which means the white week. And as the uh, Germans began to practice that as well, and they translated that word into German, they came up with this ostrum, and out of that in time came Easter. So there's some linguists who say that's where it came from. It's interesting, I was reading the uh, scholar by the name of Cademan Parsons. Cademan Parsons is an Eastern Orthodox scholar of the Middle Ages. Uh, He argues that the term is purely an old English term, and uh, it predates the second century. Uh, He says that when the Anglo-Saxon missionaries, and there were two that did this, actually three, When they went among the Teutonic tribes and began to evangelize them, they already had the term Easter as a part of their language, and that therefore became injected into the Teutonic tongues, which in time became Easter in those regions. He also points out that there's only one place in antiquity where there's any mention of a spring goddess uh, among the Teutonic races, and uh, correctly points out that in the middle 1800s, 
as the various states, Teutonic states, began to move toward becoming the country of Germany, there were many that were very much focused on trying to validate an ancient German culture. Two of these were the Grimm brothers who wrote Grimm's fairy tales. You notice most of those fairy tales are German. And so they were the first ones who began to really write about uh, the existence of such a uh, spring goddess among the Teutonic races and so on and so on. And then it was interesting to me as I I read, I found uh, that he listed 23 old English terms predating the second century, all that had some form of Easter in them. And so that's his explanation as to how it came from, the origin being in the mists of the Anglo-Saxon language uh, well prior to the second century. Now, which of these three is right? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Actually, I could spend hours and hours and hours trying to research and test this and test that, but to me, how unprofitable that would be. Uh, I want to plead with you in this church today because I know some of you have different views on this. Let's not judge one another over the use of this term. In every culture, there have always been springtime celebrations. And it just so happens the resurrection of Christ happened at that time of year. And so we do have the more cultural, the more secular celebration of spring. We Christians, however, celebrate the cross and the resurrection of Jesus And if I use the term Easter, you know what I mean. And I'm not honoring a Teutonic goddess. I'm not honoring the ancient language of of the Brits, nor am I honoring the White Week. (laughs) But I am speaking of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's just handy to say Easter without five words explaining what I mean. Some people want to call the Resurrection Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. But there's even objection to that because that's what every Sunday is. Every Sunday uh, celebrates the resurrection. As a matter of fact, the many argue that's why we have communion on Sunday. We have the Lord's Supper in which we display the cross of Jesus, but it's held on Sunday which celebrates the resurrection. And so by holding communion on Sunday, we have the full gospel displayed by both of these things being present at the same time. As a matter of fact, there are some who argue it's wrong to have the Lord's Supper on any day other than Sunday because you're having the cross without the resurrection. There was a time that was my position. It no longer is, as you well know, because I participate in Monday, Thursday. So, uh, but anyway, that's it. To, to call it Resurrection Sunday even is somewhat redundant, although not wrong, but somewhat uh, redundant. So, Why Easter? Well, following Bill's plan of connecting the dots, uh, let's connect the dots. And as we seek to do so, as we ask the question, why Easter? There are really two reasons, sin and God's love. Let's talk about sin. In the New Testament, there are two words that we render sin. The first word is paroptima. That word is used 23 times in the New Testament. And even though these two words, and we'll talk about both of them in a minute, are virtually synonyms and at times seem to be used interchangeably, yet at the bottom line, both of them 
contain different uh, subtle meanings. Paroptima carries the idea of transgression of some law or principle. Here are two examples of the term, Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, paroptima, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Galatians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions, your paroptima, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. In the Garden of Eden, you recall, and this is interesting, the language in Hebrew and both in the Greek Septuagint, God commanded man, saying, from the tree of the garden you may freely eat. In other words, I'm commanding you, eat this stuff, enjoy it. But here's something else, another part of my commandment is this, don't eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. The day you do, you will surely die. So a command to enjoy all the good things I've given you, but I also command you, leave that one alone. You know the story. After the serpent tempted Eve, we read in Galatians 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he a clear disobedience of God, a paraptama. First John tells us that sin is disobedience of the law. Think of all the consequences of that single act. Mankind lost its innocence. Disease resulting in death became a part of our human experience. Even the whole earth itself was changed. Violence and so on. On and on. Man was said, from now on, you're going to work, but it's not going to be tending the garden like it was before. You're going to be trying to produce a crop in a hostile world. You will sweat. It will be hard work. There will be storms. There will be drought. All of that, the result of that disobedience. From that first transgression, the virus of sin became a disease that is perpetuated in every generation of the human race. And every individual, every single one of us has a propensity for sin. It's our disease as human beings, that sin of disease in our lives. You know, from time to time, various ones have gotten this idea, well, we're just going to solve all the problems. We're going to all get together. We're going to live together in a loving community. <laughs> and back in the Jesus movement, a lot of folks tried it. Uh, they tried it at Walden Pond. You re hear about the New World Order. We'll all just get together. Matter of fact, there used to be some songs like that. Excuse me, take my hand, we'll all get together. I can't remember the words. You know the song, you guys that were alive back then, as I was. But I didn't sing them, you did. But, <laughs> but, you, but you know the song. <laughs> we all just get together in love. Every time that's been tried, it didn't work because the disease of sin and selfishness and jealousies and, and judgment and all these things crop up. It's unavoidable. 
even among the holiest of groups, it's something that we have to work on. It is the disease of sin. Nothing more tragic as a result of this disease and the severing of the relationship between man and God. At the bottom line, sin is the expression of our need to be in control instead of letting God sit upon the throne. That's what it is. I'm going to be in control. My desires, my lusts are going to be in control, but not you. A number of times as Paul talks about this, he uses the term enemies of God. We are enemies of God because we're trying to dethrone him. A part of us is anyway. Here's some passages in which Paul uses that language. Romans 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.18 and following, Ephesians 2.3, Colossians 1.21. We enemies of God. That's really what we are. We're going to take over your castle, or at least right now your castle's not going to be where I live. The second of the Greek terms is hamartia, used 174 times in the New Testament. It's cognate, hamartama, four times. And it carries the idea of not deliberately disobeying, but of missing the mark. In other words, imperfection. The Hebrew word is hama, which just means to miss. Because of the disease of sin, we will always miss the mark of perfection, even though we're determined to hit the mark. Now, I have a cousin whose husband was a brilliant mathematician. And he just lived in this strange mathematical world. He carried journals around. While everybody else was having conversations or dinner, he'd be over in a corner inventing formulas. and all. I have one of his, one of his uh, journals that he left at my house one time. Most precise, deliberate, um, unbelievable, careful uh, script. Most bizarre thinking in the world. I have no idea what it's all about. But this, this interesting genius... <laughs> Now, my cousin, who was his wife, and he had a little boy, and the father had no involvement in this son's life. The boy's mother and the boy's grandmother reared him, and he never knew the robustness of what it is means to be a male. His grandmother was the principal of his school, so nobody ever dared bully him, challenge him, <laughs> or else the wrath of the principal came down on him. <laughs> he lived a totally protected, unmasculine life. One day we were in Venita visiting my aunt and my boys. I think all of us were there, Barb, all four, five of the kids. And uh, they happened to be in town, and they were there. My boys were climbing trees, and David decided he wanted to try to climb a tree. And oh my goodness, my, his grandmother and mother fearfully watched at the window you know, we, he's going to get hurt. And then the boy started throwing the baseball. He had never thrown a baseball in his life. And I don't know which one of my sons it was, but stood over here with the glove, and he wound up to throw as hard as he could, and he took dead aim. But instead of going to the glove, the ball went that way and broke my car window. <laughs> now, he didn't mean for that to happen. He was aiming, <laughs> but he missed. 
How many times has that happened with us in life? Hallett and I were talking some weeks ago about practicing on our instruments. My practicing the clarinet, his working on, on his uh, guitar. And he said, you know, isn't it interesting how some days it all just goes so easy and other days nothing goes right? That's so true. You know, you sit there and, and you know, I, here's a clarinet, you know, so there, you, you, you want to find alternate ways to move from a B natural to a C sharp to a D sharp. And so you know how to do it and your fingers know to do it. And some days they do it and other days they just won't do it. Rebellion. <laughs> missing the mark, trying as hard as they can, knowing how, wanting to, but can't quite get there. That's why Paul wrote in a moment of great honesty, we know the law is spiritual. I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin. What I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not practicing what I'd like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. No longer am I the one doing it. Sin dwells in me. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not on and on he goes. Can't we relate to Paul? <laughs> uh, when I was younger, I, I maybe have told you about this before, I, 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 I struggled with cursing. And I'd go to work in the morning, today I'm not going to curse. I wouldn't be at work 30 minutes till it started coming out of my mouth, <laughs> frustrated on the railroads, the way some of the fellow workers were doing things. And I, I really battled that. I just couldn't get my tongue under control. Now, one day I noticed I wasn't cursing, and I realized I was an angry person, and God sovereignly had plucked that anger out of my heart. Praise His name. But I, I could not, by willpower, overcome that thing. How many of us have things like that in our lives? Uh, it may even be a subtle thing. I don't want to be judgmental, but I find myself being judgmental. I don't want to talk too much, but I talk too much, you know. <laughs> uh, try as we may. Aim for the mark as diligently as we can. We'll miss it because we have the virus of sin. And so the first dot we connect is sin. You know, sadly, most people don't take sin seriously enough. I know a young man uh, who became involved with a woman. He's a very chaste young man, a very pure young man, and she began to try to persuade him to have sex with her. Became enamored with him, called him on the phone, sent him texts, just harassed him. And he would say, but here's what the Word of God says. She says, I know what the Word of God says, but everybody sins, God forgives. What a casual attitude. Yesterday, Jim and Jill Trot passed through town, and I had the blessing of walking and chatting with them for about two hours before they went on their journey. And Jill talked about teaching school in a suburb of Seattle, and she said they have a number of younger teachers now that are teaching and there's an older retired teacher now that's come back. And some of the girls went to the older retired teacher and said, you know, we hear all of this thing about the rules, but we recently went to some concert, I don't know what it was, some rock concert, and two of these younger teachers were there and they were smashed, they were as drunk as they could be, and they were throwing themselves all over the men. What about that, you know? 
what's wrong with our culture? What's wrong with our society? We do not take sin seriously. There's no fear of God before their eyes, the book of Romans says. We don't take sin seriously. You know, we need to meditate upon the cross. One reason we need to meditate upon the cross and not turn our eyes away, as we think of all that Jesus went through, it's hard to not avert our eyes, isn't it? But we need to stop in life from time to time and with wide open eyes look at the cross and picture Jesus and realize every time I sin, I press that crown of thorns down upon his bleeding brow. Every time I sin, I lay the lash to his back. Every time I sin, I drive a nail into his tender flesh. I urge you, find time by yourself to meditate upon the sufferings of Jesus and know that's because of sin. And then look at the consequences of the results of sin in all of our lives. If it were not for the fall of Adam and Eve, Tom Buck would not be dealing with continual pain. Pam Buto would not be in the shape she's in today in the hospital. Pat Gregory would not be living with constant pain. Millard would not be dealing with prostate cancer. I have a friend, an elder in in New York is having his prostate removed for prostate cancer. My own son, John, just diagnosed with prostate cancer. None of these would be true were it not for the way that sin has become the virus that inhabits humanity. Just got this email. I'm sure some others of you did this morning at 410 this morning. Prayer for Dr. Alia. Please, please pray for Dr. Dr. Alia, our dear friend and doctor. This is uh, a doctor who works with uh, in in uh, Kazakhstan with the Akers. Now, this dear lady is very close to her brother, her wife, and kids. Her niece just died. We don't know all the details. She'll be leaving for Astana today. Please uphold her in prayer. She is the only believer in her family. So on and so on. You know what? This email never would have been sent if Adam and Eve had not disobeyed God. If Adam and Eve didn't had not disobeyed God, we wouldn't need police. Uh, we wouldn't need soldiers. We wouldn't have any need for Mike Bros and the Mental Health Association. We wouldn't have need for all the work that Linda Steed is doing with the little light. Think how different the world would be if sin had not entered the human race and brought about the conditions that we now know. When you think about all that sin causes, it's pretty hard not to hate sin. And I think we should. Why Easter? Well, Easter celebrates our deliverance, the opportunity for our deliverance, and I say opportunity, the opportunity for our deliverance from the guilt of sin, 
It celebrates the opportunity for our freedom from the dominance of sin. It celebrates the resurrection of Christ. But all of that, of course, happens because of God's love. And think about that. Here's, we often quote Romans 5. While we were yet helpless, <laughs> at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You know the passage. We'll not read it. We're made in the image of God. We were and are. But as fallen creatures, his character so often isn't displayed at all. One reason Jesus came to earth is to restore that image. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. But as God looked down upon the human race, there was not one thing in us to commend us to him. We had become his enemy. Think about this. God's wrath is the future fate of mankind. Jesus, or rather John the Baptist, talking to the Pharisees, Matthew 3, 7, He saw me, the Pharisees, Sadducees, coming for baptism. He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's a wrath that's coming. Paul wrote to Thessalonians three times, here two of them, We wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who, praise God, rescues us from the wrath to come. For God has not destined us for wrath, but the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wrath, wrath was and is the fate of the human race. God's love was not content to leave it that way. And so Jesus Christ came to deliver us from wrath, those who will accept his sacrifice. He came to bring us to once again conform to the character of God and to give us the opportunity to escape the guilt of sin, the dominance of sin, the consequence of sin and praise God the promised resurrection to all who are in him these are eternal consequences I think anybody who ever really looks at the cross I don't think I know <laughs> anybody who really takes a serious look at the cross and a serious look at his own life can say with Paul is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. Don't we all feel that from time to time as we look in the mirror and we think of the cross? Connect the dots between Easter and our sin and God's love. And that's why we have Easter. Father God, we thank you for who you are and not overlooking who we are, but doing something about it. Through Jesus, amen.